All right. Well, that was Ode to the End of War by Sergei Prokofiev, a Soviet composer who had actually been born in Savnitska, Sonsevka, Donbass Oblast, where unfortunately there's active fighting going on even today. I thought it was appropriate music to start our discussion about this terrible war that is taking place as we speak in Ukraine. So welcome everyone to this Twitter space. My name is Dmitry Alperovich. I'm chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator. It is a geopolitical think tank. And I'm very glad to have two extraordinary people with me today. Michael Kaufman is a research program director in the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis. And Rob Lee is a senior fellow at the Eurasia Program of the Foreign Policy Research Institute and also a former U.S. Marine Infantry Officer. Both of them are leading experts on Russian military and defense policy. So welcome, Mike and Rob. Hey, thank, happy beer. Yeah, thanks for uh, hosting this. Great. So I guess all three of us are somewhat of uh, modern-day Cassandras, having all publicly predicted early on this invasion going back nearly three months ago. Uh, and I think, Mike, you actually were on record even earlier back in November. Unfortunately, we all turned out to be right, but I think it's fair to say that there are some things about this campaign that have surprised even all of us, and we'll certainly get to all of that in a moment. But let's start with the current situation. Rob, your, your Twitter stream is absolutely amazing and keeping us up to date on all sorts of open source intelligence coming from the battlefields uh, really across Ukraine. It's hard to keep up with it, uh, quite frankly. I'm not sure you, you ever sleep. Uh, but let's kick things off with you. Can you provide us with an update on what's happening right now with the Russian advance? Where their forces now, to the best of your knowledge? Sure. Um, so, you know, so, so for the most part, the the Russian advance last few days has kind of been basically the same kind of story. Where in, in the south, Russia's continue to have you know success advancing. Um, they're forced outside Mykolaiv, um, which is their kind of latest advance. It seems as though they, they took some losses today. It looks as though a, a VDV unit got got uh, ambushed. And then there's still heavy fighting around Mariupol. Not too clear what's exactly happening there. It, it, Ukrainian forces seem to be surrounded there, um, but continue to hold out. And, it's, and it, it's, I think I expect them to continue fighting you know, as, as long as they can. Um, the Russian forces of Donbass are trying to, to push out now. So they're moving both to the northwest of the Donbass and west. Um, Russian forces in the northeast have mostly, I think, surrounded Kharkiv, Sumy, um, Chernigov, those main cities. Um, what we're seeing is really heavily bombardment in all those cities, right? So initially, it was a lot of multi-launch rocket systems, fire, um, like Smirch, Wodegon, Grad. And then now it's, it's increasingly, it's, it's an air campaign, right? So we're seeing Su-34s, Su-30SM. Um, they're, they're taking off from, from the Russia, Belarus, um, heavily loaded with bombs, right? So, I mean, today... This dog gave a video showing a Su-34 with, I think, eight 500-kilogram bombs. Um, and they're basically just uh, conducting, you know, pretty pretty constant kind of sorties and connecting airstrikes in those cities. And then in Kiev, right, where the, where the other kind of main focus is um, the Russian forces have advanced from the east. So they have at least some elements have kind of gone to the, the outskirts in the eastern part of Kiev and Bravari. Um, Ukraine has been able to ambush some of those forces and have success there. And then in the, the northwest, is really when we had this interesting area where, you know, the, the Hostomol, um, uh, Bucha, and Irpin neighborhoods where, you know, on the first day of the of the war, Russia conducted that air assault operation to try and take the air, air uh, the airport there, wasn't able to take it the first day or hold it. 
but we've, we've seen fighting there ever since. And Ukrainians, it appears Ukrainian softs play a really key role there. They're, they're doing a really impressive job of holding back Russian forces. And so it's mostly Russian BDV units we've seen there. I think Russ Gvardi as well. Um, but there, there have been a number of videos showing destroyed VDV columns there. And so it, it appears Ukrainians are having a lot of success there. And as long as they have success there, they prevent uh, Russia from encircling Kiev to, to the west. And so that, that's become a really important battle. And it'll be interesting to see how, you know, how long they can hold out there. Um, but basically, you know, Russia's having success in the south, although it seems to have slowed possibly a little bit the last couple of days. And then we're still waiting on Kiev, right? We're still waiting on, on when can Russia encircle Kiev um, and, and actually start the kind of siege. Um, and I, but at the same time, the main cities in the northeast are still holding out. And that still kind of, I think, indicates how much a tough fight Kiev will be when Russia actually does encircle it and tries to siege it. Great. Uh, Mike, anything to add to that? No, I think that's a good roundup. I think that probably what I would add is that in the last couple of days, we've definitely seen a real shift towards greater use of air power and much greater use of both combat helicopters and aircraft. Russian forces have taken a number of losses and they paid the price for choosing not to conduct the proper seed suppression of enemy air defense type campaign. Instead, they sort of pursued local air superiority over pockets where the forces are working. Um, the The air losses are, are definitely significant, but I expect we're going to see to see more Russian air power push into this war. We'll see much greater use of sort of overwhelming firepower. You know, Russia's primarily an artillery army, a lot of motor rifle maneuver and armor formations, but so far it's used far less artillery than it could have in these fights. I think the big challenges for them, as always, as you see, they're starting to get into a sort of tempo where they have several days of advances, then a pause to replenish, uh, tighten up supply lines, reconsolidate forces, bring up some other units, and then conduct uh, several days of attacks or offensives again. I think we're, we're currently in that phase now. Got it. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about the initial plan, because it was certainly puzzling to many to see them amass what is essentially the largest invasion force Europe has seen since at least the invasion of Czechoslovakia in the 60s, over 50 years ago, and then not use it in those initial days and do these small units uh, engagements and, and try to drive to Kiev. What do you think happened there, Mike? Uh, how badly did the mess miscalculate? What drove it, in your opinion? Sure. So, you know, the, the scope of the conflict, I think, is what we expected, even the axis of attack, but certainly not the character and nature of the operation. This operation at, at the outset, I think, to many, looked profoundly bizarre. What happened was, is that the political system, the Russian regime, really assumed that they could rapidly conduct regime change and they wouldn't face substantial resistance. And they sent Russian forces in with those assumptions. So... At the outset, they had thought to introduce units very quickly into the capital, Kiev, and to try to get Zelensky to surrender. And then they pushed small detachments and elements very rapidly down roads in what you could colloquially call thunder runs, avoiding major cities, avoiding battles with Ukrainian forces to try to isolate sectors and very early on. Uh, they got a bloody nose. It was a terrible miscalculation. And. And so there are two factors that really shape this operation at the outset. The first is a host of assumptions about Ukraine that clearly hadn't evolved much since 2014 and the belief that they could literally just roll up the country without much of a fight in a few days 
which I think may seem wild or bizarre to some listeners, but the operation definitely reflects that. This is not a combined arms operation. It is not a joint operation. About four or five days in, you see the Russian forces attempting to turn it into a combined arms operation after what is initially a debacle. And the second part of it, which is also significant, is that they clearly didn't tell the forces they were sending them to war. They deployed these units on military exercise and pushed them to the border and told them not to worry, nothing serious is going to happen. And then in the very last minute, they finally gave junior officers their orders, which were actually to invade Ukraine. And the troops, I think, were shocked to find out what their real mission was and were psychologically materially not prepared for it, not organized for it. And even then, when they were sent in, you could tell very, very readily by the first 48 hours that they were sent in under under false pretenses, believing that they wouldn't encounter substantial resistance. They were essentially uh, given a narrative that they were there to help Ukrainians uh, liberate themselves from you know, this regime, which, uh, of course, was profoundly untrue and to what extent they believed is debatable, but nonetheless, that's essentially what they were told. And you saw that, of course, all those illusions and those lies probably dissipated at the first uh, ambush or the first encounter of resistance that they faced. But this is why Russian forces have had tremendously low morale. And I think we've seen uh, sporadic desertions across the board and units abandoning their equipment is because they realize that not only, not only is the entire affair sort of a shambolic in terms of how it was organized, but the Russian forces were clearly sent into Ukraine uh, and under false pretenses as well. And this is, of course, not, the, not in any way or shape or form to make victims of it, but just to express why the operation to any outside observer seems incredibly strange. This is a military invading the largest country in Europe, attempting a full-scale invasion of it, but without the actual military operation that you would remotely uh, expect or that you would you would feel commensurate to the task. So do you think that was an intel failure? I mean, GRU is usually pretty good at analyzing enemy defenses and capabilities, right? Did they fail here, or do you think they got overridden by Putin or others around him? I don't think it was GRU. I suspect it was FSB. And I think that this is a problem of decision-making a personalist authoritarian system. One thing you've definitely learned a lot about is the degree of sycophancy. Because, you know, I, I think we're analysts like me, and, and no matter how much I got, I, I may have feel like I've gotten right, there's definitely plenty I got wrong. And the one thing I definitely got wrong is, you know, you have fundamentally a personalist authoritarian regime. And I think we felt that despite the miscalculations, we assumed that this would be a terrible gambit based on war optimism. A lot of wars are, certainly for the aggressor. And, and, and attempts of regime change usually fail or end up in quagmires. Fine. But we kind of thought that they would hand the ball off to the military. And the military itself, as an institutionalized military, would conduct a large combined arms operation and, and would sort of uh, do it in a particular fashion. And that proved profoundly untrue. Actually... The political assumptions, the motivations, and the calculus of the regime characterize the thing throughout. That's why it was a completely unworkable concept of operations. And the only way this could have happened is if people like Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, or Gyrmarsimov, the Chief of General Staff, actually heard the assumptions and nodded along and said, yes, this is possible. But of course, the assumptions were ridiculous. How could you take Kiev in three days? In, in what universe is it possible to take the capital of a country like this in a handful of days. And you, you had to have signed off on, you had to have subscribed to some of these assumptions in order for this type of operation to ever be launched. So 
Um, I Like I said, I definitely, in terms of the character of the operation, how they started, uh, I think that was a misjudgment on the part of a lot of us looking at it. That said, the Russian military since then has definitely adjusted and is now trying to conduct this as a combined arms operation with, with the rest of the of the force and services involved in it. So, so let, me, let me ask you, though, Rob, um, despite all those failures, I did a, a little bit of math recently, and I compared this to the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. And it took us 14 days at, uh, at that time to drive 550 kilometers to get to Baghdad from the Kuwait border, essentially about 40 kilometers per day on average. And when you look at the Russian advance across multiple axes, it was actually twice uh, as fast in the south. Um, so it took them about five days, I think, to get from Crimea to Mariupol, a distance of about 400 kilometers. That's about 80 kilometers per day. Uh, about the same number of days to get to Mykolaiv, 300 kilometers. Uh, from Sumy to Chernihiv, another five days, another 300 kilometers there. So they're actually moving quite a bit faster than the U.S. was back in those days and against an army that is much more motivated to fight and uh, much better armed probably than the Iraqis were with Western weapons. Uh, how do you explain that? So um, I guess I'll start by saying, you know, we only know so much, right? So we know we, we know we get the 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 random kind of um, you know, briefings from DOD officials. And then we know what we see right from satellite photos. We know what we see from videos on TikTok elsewhere of where Russian troops and what, what they're doing. Um, the advance has not been you know, slow by historical terms. Um, but, you know, it, it, one, one of the things to keep in mind from when they, when they did the breakout from Crimea, they, they reached the, the Dnieper like very, very quickly. Right. They basically drove right to it. But by driving there, it didn't mean they secured all the things behind it. Right. They didn't they didn't necessarily secure supply lines. They didn't secure all the towns on the way there. And what we've seen since then, right, as we keep seeing these kind of raids, these ambushes by by Ukrainian whether, whether soldiers or territorial units or not, not always clear. But we're seeing a lot of those. Right. And so by, you know, by advancing so quickly, um, they, Russia kind of uh, assumed a lot of risk because they put their supply lines at much more risk. They put all these convoys at risk. And, and, you know, that, that ultimately is a question of whether or not that was a smart move, right? Is, is, is it makes more sense to move quickly and, and leave your supply lines at risk, or does it make more sense to be, you know, move a little more deliberately, but to, to secure those things? I would say probably the latter made more sense in this case, um, especially once, you know, the, 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 the lightning dash to Kiev didn't turn out. And so, again, you know, we've, it, it's still hard to get a good estimate of Russian casualties, but, you know, they're significant, right? They are, um, they're, they're, they're probably not that far from what the U.S. took in Iraq over the entire war, and so drastically more than what they took when the U.S. took in the in the first you know the, the actual invasion phase. So that's significant. The equipment losses have been you know pretty significant too. Um, you know, air defense systems, Torm twos, um, um, engineering systems, tanks, all these kind of things they've they've lost. Um, you know, not not something that's that's you know a pretty substantial amount of things they've lost basically. Um, so anyway, the advances has not been that slow, but it's still a question of okay. What, what you know? How ready are they to move on to the most important objectives, right? So Kiev, they still haven't encircled it. It's still not clear to me when they're going to be able to take the west side of Kiev, right? With, with that massive convoy and the forces there, that that part is still not clear to me. The, the the main cities in the northeast are still holding out, so Russia can bypass them. They have bypassed them, but have they bypassed them with large large enough forces to encircle the east side of Kiev? That's not fully clear to me yet as well. Um, and ultimately, you know, Ukraine is a large country. And as they as Russian forces move deeper into the country, the supply lines become even more vulnerable to these kind of attacks and ambush and things they didn't they, uh, they could not expect. So 
you know, I think we're, we're taking stock of where they are right now. Things can, can obviously change, but they, they haven't necessarily put themselves in the best position and they haven't taken the, the most important cities yet. And I think there's still a lot of, you know, big questions for the future. And, you know, look, obviously Mike was, was right. This war was based on some very optimistic assumptions. And there's also very optimistic assumptions about what political um, political goals they could achieve with military force. That that made sense. They didn't get much resistance. But it really seems to me as though it's clear Ukrainians are resisting almost everywhere. It's clear even in these, these Russian-speaking cities in the south, in Kherson and Melitopol, um, there's there's huge protests happening, you know, almost daily basis. I, I, I find it hard to believe Russia expected that um, because it obviously it points to this being a difficult, you know, long term, medium term operation if they're trying to hold these cities and continue to move move out beyond there. So th- there's still a lot of problems with the operation, even though the advance, you know, wasn't as slow as, as I guess some people expected. Mike, do you agree with that? Do you think they move too fast and are still moving too fast? Initially, yeah, absolutely. But they look, they didn't even try to move as combined arms formations. They were pushing small detachments down roads rapidly to seize roads and junctions. And you saw a lot of basically uh, tanks operating without infantry, infantry without tanks, nothing being escorted, no convoy escorts. You got a lot of logistics and support being ambushed along the way. Most definitely. They took that risk because fundamentally the concept of operations was that it wasn't a risk. They did not expect to be ambushed. They didn't expect to find serious resistance and they had to make very significant adjustments. And the way they split the force up actually dramatically increased the likelihood of desertion, which is small detachments finding themselves cut off or ambushed, abandoning their equipment because they're actually not part of a larger formation, right? And and so then it comes down to a lot of inexperienced leadership of junior commanders. Um, that said, you know, the Russian military is also known for resilience and for adapting. And so I was trying to hedge some of the initial optimism because Ukraine's military has definitely performed well above and beyond early expectations, for sure. But that was the beginning of the war, and we still are relatively in the early phase of the war. And I was trying to temper the initial optimism with also the, the reality that the Russian military retains a substantial amount of forces in the fight, despite the significant losses they've taken. This conflict is very far from determined and a great deal is contingent. Well, speaking of uh, larger formations, um, let's talk a little bit about this convoy that's to the west of Kiev, uh, supposedly a 40-mile convoy. I think uh, there are lots of memes now on Twitter about this convoy. What is the state of it? Is it getting attacked? What do you guys know about it? Well, I don't know I was going to go first, but maybe I'll speak for a bit. Uh, first, I think it's a series of units. It's a number of battalion tactical groups. It's not one 40-mile-long convoy, however the media represents it. I think they very much got jammed up because Ukrainians blew most of the bridges. And there's been some pretty serious fighting on the outskirts of Kiev in Vucha uh, and Irpin in particular. And so they've jammed up kind of the front of the convoy. I don't think it's stalled out in terms of being out of gas, food, and some of these other things. I've heard people say there's a lot of assumptions about what's happening there. We just don't have enough evidence or data uh, to, to, make, to make some of these claims. Um, I do feel like they're probably trying to reorganize it and press forward. Regarding the convoy itself, the reason it emerged and why they tried to push so many forces down was a pretty narrow channel of roads is, again, tremendously unrealistic timelines to try to get to the capital and thinking that they could quickly get into the city and take it. Otherwise, they would have pursued a much wider front and had a much better sort of hedge to 
to their strategy. And that said, nothing is determined. You can see them steadily encircling Chernihiv in the northeast and Russian units pulling up to the east as well. So I think this still, I, I think we're in for a conflict that's likely going to turn a lot uglier and it's likely going to feature a lot more urban warfare than we've even seen thus far. We'll talk about that. Rob, uh, any, any thoughts on the convoy? Do you see attacks on the convoy beyond just the, the, the battles up front? So, you know, it's hard to see. Um, you know, what, one thing that's noticeable from the kind of open source side is that there's much less information about the Ukrainians, what they're doing. Um, they post videos every once in a while, probably a day or two after they do something, right, to not give away too much kind of uh, information about what they're doing. Um, you know, apparently Ukrainian Air Force keeps hitting targets there. We don't see too many videos. There's a video, I think, two days ago, allegedly showed a Ukrainian Su-24 operating over the area. And then there's still a question to me about TB2s, right? So we saw TB2 strikes there a few days ago. Maybe they're still doing them and just not releasing the videos. Not, it's not, not fully clear to me. So hard to know exactly what, what's going on there. But, you know, clearly, the longer Ukraine resists in those, those northwestern kind of neighborhoods of Kiev, the, the, you know, the more difficult it makes it for that convoy to kind of spread out or to move into positions around, uh, around the city, right, and actually encircle it. And so that resistance up front, which, you know, they probably didn't expect would last this long. And, and they're, you know, they're fighting against the VDV, you know, elite VDV units that appear to be getting, you know, chewed up pretty well. Um, you know, they probably didn't expect that was going to be the case. So now they're moving up heavier units. Um, as you said before, you know, it's, it's, it's not the, the longest road. It's hard to maybe, miss, you know, move up the units you want at the right time. But it, it isn't fully clear to me exactly what's going wrong there. But, you know, clearly things are not working out as quickly as they wanted to. Um, but again, you know, th- there's nothing... I, the timeline, I think, right now we look at the rest of this conflict is that Russia would like to take these big cities, I think, in the next two or three weeks. And so, you know, today, tomorrow, that's not a huge loss that they don't get there. But they want to be able to try and take them in the next couple of weeks. And that's really, I think, what's important on timeline wise before those, you know, all these issues in Russia, I think, start to come back and, and present a problem about, you know, domestic backlash for, for, for Putin. So I think that's what we're talking about in terms of, of you know, trying to encircle Kiev, trying to do an operation there. And ultimately, you know, we're seeing um, in all these other cities in Kharkiv and in Geneva uh, what Russia is going to do to Kiev, um, at least that they're threatening to do, which is that they're going to, you know, use air power pretty heavily. They're going to destroy much of the city and they're basically going to try and get all the civilians to leave. And then they're going to go in there uh, with the military and they're going to try and seize these cities. Right. But, that, but how, are... how, how do they get the civilians to leave? I mean, most of the cities are huge cities, right? Kiev has three million people in it. Like, how do you evacuate that many people? So it's not good to me you can. Um, and again, that's, you know, it, Mike was saying before about things that we got wrong. One of the things I got wrong is I thought Russia was going to stay out of cities, right? I, I thought they're trying to do this operation, they'd go after the Ukrainian military, and they're trying to avoid the cities because you go in the cities, it presents a, a bunch of problems, right? It, it, it puts your troops at greater risk. Um, Russia's conventional superiority of the Ukrainian military, well, a lot of that gets negated when you go into urban terrain, and the risk of civilian casualties goes up, right? And that 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 is an issue you know, for foreign audiences, I think it's also an issue for domestic audiences in Russia. And so it's not fully clear to me what, what they're thinking about doing or about if they even consider the situation was going to happen. But, you know, they, they seem as though they're committed. They're clearly going to try and circle Kiev. They're clearly going to try and coerce, you know, the government to, to give in at that point. But ultimately, if we keep seeing these other big cities like Kharkiv holding out, right, there's no reason to think anyone in Kiev is going to give up. And ultimately, you know, they're probably going to go in there and it could become a very, very ugly situation. Um, but as I said, the, the problems are pretty obvious and I'm not sure exactly what they thought, but clearly, I think this is not the scenario they had in mind. I, I think they clearly had a more optimistic view about what was going to happen and that they weren't going to have to, you know, go into Kiev 
like they did in Aleppo or, or, or Grozny or you know, even like the U.S. did in Fallujah. It's, it's just it is impossible to take a city where you have a determined resistance and to not destroy much of that city. It's very difficult. And Russia lacks the same kind of precision guided munitions the U.S. military has. And so there's no reason to believe they, they'd be able to do it you know, any more cleanly than the U.S. could do it in Fallujah. Mike, what is your view on cities? I mean, obviously, they want to take Kiev. They're, they're now sieging uh, Mariupol. But do you actually think that they want to go into Kharkiv and to Chernihiv, Sumy, all these cities in the north or just surround them and try to try to lay a siege to them? No, I don't think it was ever their plan to take major cities besides the capital. I think it was very clear they were trying to skirt them and get around them. I think the current plan is envelopment. I think they had to take minor towns and junctions because you saw initially that they were going precisely for the towns where key roads intersect, ground lines of communication. But they were pursuing a sectoral strategy. They were trying to isolate big sectors and then try to see if they can envelop Ukrainian forces and get those regional commands to surrender. Kharkiv has been basically kind of a punitive compelling effort, right? They've been shelling the city while steadily trying to envelop on the outside. I don't think they're actually going to seriously go in. And the same thing with some of the other big ones. It would Cities consume forces. They just eat up armies really fast. Russia doesn't have the forces for this fight. And here's the other problem. If they took cities like this, it wouldn't resolve what they believe is a center of gravity, which is the capital. That's why you see the bulk of Russian forces focused on the capital. And you see these two pincers slowly, you know, sort of ponderously moving towards it which does give you, unfortunately, very ominous kind of Grozny 1999 vibes of the same way Russian forces steadily approached Grozny uh, in that battle. But do, do you think, I mean, obviously, Kiev, the prospects for it are very glim, but do you think that they're going to decimate all these northern cities too? I'm skeptical, but I think definitely parts of them for sure. You've already seen them use both heavy firepower and aviation. Um and, you know, Russian troops don't have a tremendous amount of experience in urban combat. The last week has definitely revealed that much. They haven't trained that much for the mission and haven't had a lot of experience in it. And when running into trouble or frustrated, they usually call in air power or artillery firepower. So you're definitely going to see parts of cities or city blocks destroyed, I think, in the fighting. Got it. Um, Rob, what's your best estimate for the losses that the Russians have suffered? Obviously, they're they're putting out very low numbers. I think the last numbers were about 500 losses of personnel. Um, do you have a sense of how realistic that is? The Ukrainians are talking about, I think, over 10,000 now. Is it true somewhere in between? I think it's really hard to tell. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the Russian military gave the figure of 500 killed in action, about 1,500 wounded. That was, I think, on Monday, last Monday. All right. So basically, you know, ha- half of the war ago. Um, since then, I think the, the latest assessment I saw was that the U.S. thinks about 4,500 have died, but as a you know, low confidence estimate. Um, I mean, ultimately, we're not going to have a you know, we're not going to have high confidence in any kind of estimate at this point. It's going to be it's, it's very very difficult to, to to come to that. But I think ultimately, it's in the thousands, right? And when we're talking about the number of of casualties that taken um, in a short amount of time. They've they you know, even even the 500 figure, right? That was more or probably about more than Russia has taken in terms of, in terms of KA. They took in Georgia, and they took in the Donbass in 2014, 2015, and they've taken in Syria, which is, you know, servicemen, not counting, uh, counting Wagner. Um, so, you know, we're already talking about a, you know, unprecedented kind of uh, losses for Russia, a, a, anything time since Chechnya, 
right? And even even Chechia, I'm not in the second campaign. I'm not sure they took these kind of losses in this short amount of time, right? It, it's it's a very significant amount of loss. And of course, you know, as long as this kind of campaign goes on, there's every reason to believe the loss is going to continue, and they could probably get worse, right? And of course, there's no there's no clear conflict termination stage, right? At least at least as long as Russia tries to achieve a kind of a maximum objective, right, where they take key, they they you know who knows they occupy half the country or some of those lines. There's there's no reason to believe the fight ends then. They can basically just arbitrarily say this is over, and and Ukraine's going to stop fighting. They're going to keep fighting. The insurgency will probably become more capable. And, you know, Russian, Russian forces are, are strewn out. They're, they are um, they will become isolated in a lot of these cities. A lot of these areas are controlling and a lot of them will be easy targets. Right. It'll be difficult to kind of control those areas. So, um, the, again, hard to say what the figure is. I, I think it's certainly in the thousands, I'd say. And it's, it's only going to grow. And, you know, it, it's quite possible it's going to be, um, you know, orders of magnitude more than the last three ru- wars that Russia fought combined. And it, it appears the way it's, it's headed in that direction right now. What is your um, uh, current assessment of where Belarus is in terms of their actual forces, whether air power or ground forces? Are they in the fight yet? Um, what, what do you see from from that perspective? Um, Mike might, might be able to answer them better than I. Uh, I haven't seen any clear evidence they've been, they've been involved. I mean, the, the Belarusian military is not, you know, they're not that necessarily effective. They, they don't take part in, you know, too many kind of large scale conventional operations. Right. So it, it, it certainly some big question marks about how useful they would be. They could probably hold some areas, but probably you wouldn't want to send them into, you know, main kind of conventional fights with the Ukrainian military. Um, it, but again, it's, it becomes back to this idea that, you know, R- Russia has a numbers game issue here. Right. So they already have committed, I think, what was it? 90, 95 percent, 96 percent of the of the battalion battalion groups that they deployed near the border before. Uh, and that was already 75% of the Russian military's BTGs, right? So we're talking, a, you know, 70% or so of the Russia, Russian ground forces, you know, permanent readiness units are right now, um, you know, committed to Ukraine. That's a huge share. And it leaves Russia really kind of vulnerable to, if they need to use the military for any other operation, they just don't have the forces right now. And so it's not surprising we're hearing stories of them, you know, getting Wagner guys, taking Roskvardia guys, basically trying to pull guys from wherever they can. Because ultimately, if you occupy, you know, areas, you need more force to do that. And, you know, one thing that's unique is that when compared to, say, U.S. military, Russian military has, has, has far more emphasis on, manu- on, on fires over maneuver, far more emphasis on a lot of those kind of important support functions. The problem is that means they have, they have fewer maneuver units like infantry guys who are more useful for, you know, insurgency, counterinsurgency type operations, right? They're more useful for, for holding, for patrolling areas. Uh, tank units are not used for that. Right. Artillery units are not used for that. So in a lot of ways, the Russian military that that went into Ukraine is not really that well suited to a lot of the things they're facing in the south right now. And I'm not sure the Rusgardia guys really make up uh, uh, the difference enough. So they're facing a number of issues in that regard. Mike, um, let's talk a little bit about logistics. Uh, There's been a lot of Twitter threads from various experts on tires and fuel and uh, various other things about the problems that the Russians may or may not be having with logistics. Obviously, we've seen videos. I think you posted one of them looting stores uh, for food. Um, what do you think is happening there? Uh, you know, are they having issues uh, across the board with fuel, with food? Uh, and if so, why? Sure. So first, I'm skeptical that they actually organize logistics for a sustained long-term military operation. They probably tried to get that act together a few days in when it became clear what the reality was. Second, 
they were not really operating the way they train and fight. And I've been trying to emphasize that. So Russian logistics are definitely not set up to support small detachments operating way forward on their own in these different units. Um, and they weren't really set up or experienced with convoy escorts. So a lot of logistics units and support units that were trying to catch up operating on their own got ambushed. You saw way too many units that should be in a combined arms formation completely uh, separated and vulnerable, not doing many of the things they should be doing. In terms of logistical availability, I've definitely seen a lot of debates of people saying, well, they maybe only plan for three days, and that's why they're running out of food. Um, it might be the case for some units, but overall, I don't think that's true. I actually think they do have quite a bit of logistics that you have a hard time pushing it forward. And keep in mind, the Russian military, when it was reformed and constructed, this military in particular, is not really set up for strategic ground defensives. It's much more oriented around maneuver defense. It doesn't have the right logistical tail for the amount of firepower that the Russian military brings to the battlefield. And it wasn't really designed for prolonged ground defensives. And on top of that, the Russian military has not attempted an operation of the scale in many, many decades, right? And, and certainly probably didn't think that it really was, right? As you if you subscribe to the assumptions I told you up front, many of the units didn't, didn't actually know necessarily about what their tasks and goals were early on, and they didn't plan for a sustained fight with a conventional military the size of Ukraine. So you're seeing a lot of problems emerge in the Russian military and logistical side. That said, I do think the sustainment conversation is oversold. And I will make this comment. I appreciate a lot of folks with military and tactical experience that are joining the conversation and contributing to their piece of the puzzles. But I got to tell you, if you haven't been in Russian military analysis, you don't know about the Russian military, you haven't studied it, you haven't followed this region, please be cautious about what you're offering and the extent to which you think this entire war can be described by tire pressure. All right, be careful about the generalization and conclusions you arrive at based on your experience with this problem set. All right, let, let's talk a little bit about the Ukrainian side. Um, and I want to ask both of you, maybe you can t- take turns, maybe Mike will start with you. What do you think of the Ukrainian defense so far? What do you think they've done right? What do you think they've done wrong? And the third part of the question is, what do you think the West can realistically do right now to help them in this fight? Is that for me? Yeah, we'll, we'll start with you and then same question to Rob. So I think what they've done right is definitely focus on defense, particularly in the urban terrain, which heavily favors the defender. Um, assimilate as much as they could of Western capabilities that were pushed forward to them very rapidly. Use the initial Russian mistake to um, maximize force generation, reserves, distribute weapons, and try to fortify the terrain. I think they did a good job blowing the bridges and making the Russian task much harder than it could have been early on. And, um, you know, I, I actually can't say enough about, uh, like, how impressed I have been with the Ukrainian resistance writ large. And even the partisan units have started, you know, ambushing units along the road um, and, and along with a civilian kind of civil but peaceful resistance that you see in the cities. Uh, well, they, you know, if I was going to say, well, if anything, they, they've done wrong. I've seen them try to launch some counteroffensives that I probably wouldn't have to try to relieve pressure. I think that Ukrainian forces are going to have a hard time doing anything combined arms themselves and pushing units forward in most cases outside of places like Kiev might not be necessarily what they want to do. I'm not going to prejudge their operational planning. My knowledge of that is very limited and basically what you can see here. 
you know, there's nothing I hate more than sort of, um, you know, being an armchair general for somebody else's existential war. So I'm not going to get into that game. I'm just saying that I've seen other commentators suggest that what Ukraine should do is the counteroffensives and the like. And I'm thinking that the fastest way to attrition, the limited amount of military power Ukraine has, is for them to take anybody else's advice and push their forces hard onto a field against Russian units. That's probably not a good idea, given the correlation of forces and capabilities. Got it. And last part, what, what should the West be doing? I mean, obviously, we can't be providing them with our fighter jets that they can't fly. We can't provide them with air defense systems that they can't learn uh, at the moment. But what, what do you think that we can realistically do to help relieve some of the pressure? You know, push forward logistics. Logistics are essential in a sustained conflict. Everybody talks about different boutique weapons capabilities, but what ultimately uh, drives the war is logistics, ammunition, supply and the like. Um, push forward man portable systems that can allow them to further equip the force. And they've been proven incredibly effective. Not to waste too much so time. Like, like with, the, the javelins and the stingers, right? Right, right, right. And not to waste too much time with some of these MiG-29 ideas. Look, let, let me be frank. A lot of the aircraft Ukraine has put up have gotten shot down, right? Russians have losses, but Ukraine has a lot of losses in its fourth generation uh, aircraft legacy air force. And pushing MiG-29s, are they going to fly from uh, air bases that are being readily barraged on a daily and nightly basis? And th- this is not, to me at least, isn't going to do nearly as much for Ukraine as certain other things that could be supplied to the country. They're just one person's opinion. Yeah. Rob, same question to you. What have they done right? What have they done wrong? What should the West be doing? So I think, I think the most important thing they did was that they didn't lose the war on the first day or two, the first two days. Right. They, did, they didn't lose their Air Force. They didn't lose their air defenses. They didn't lose their Tochka use. They didn't lose all of these important capabilities. They managed to to keep them hidden. They managed to you know avoid you know GRU guys trying kind of trying to follow where these where these systems were. Um, you know U.S. intelligence may have may have aided them right. They may have an idea of what Russia was planning to do, but all of that was really important. Right? All of that was important to not lose the war immediately and to and to to basically uh, um, to to extend this conflict, which is something that Russia clearly did not want to do. Right. And so that was very effective in the beginning. Um, in general, their, their OPSEC seems to be very good. Right. It, it's it's hard to kind of figure out a lot of what they're doing, where the Ukrainian military is. Um, you're not seeing too many guys, you know, take videos themselves and post it online. Um, so so a lot of that has been you know, quite Im- impressive. It, it's it been you know, fairly professional. I think Ukrainian soft appears to be quite effective. And I think, you know, the, the investments made into them seem like they're, they're really having a strong kind of return on investment. So I think a lot of those things are important. And then ultimately, just resistance, right? We've seen resistance everywhere. Um, they're not giving up, right? Civilians are, are pushing back, and the military keeps continues to fight. And we haven't seen a real collapse anywhere, right? We've seen, you know, in the south, they traded uh, space or time. That made sense, but in reality, we we haven't seen any kind of large scale surrendering of Ukrainian forces. It seems as though they, they've been pretty smart. They retreated when they needed to, and and you know didn't didn't you know they didn't take these massive losses that could have let Russia advance very heavily and take these kind of strategic locations. So all of that's been very impressive. They've also fared out fared well against you know elite Russian units. So Russian paratroopers, you know, they've done well against them. Uh, Russian spetsnaz, you know, the, the first day in Kharkiv, for whatever reason, Russia sent in a, a, maybe a platoon or company of these guys, and they got pushed back very quickly. Um, Ukrainians are you know proving adept at, at being able to do that, adept at fighting an unconventional fight, um, and they're being smart about you know going to cities, making sure they can't get destroyed outside of cities, and, and not making this mistake of fighting a conventional fight against a superior, you know, power, a conventional power. So all of that has been very smart, right? And Mike's right. 
the, the idea of counterattacking at tactical level, it can make sense at times. At operational level, it probably doesn't make sense, right? It makes more sense to to not you know lose you know, a substantial amount of forces and then make to force Russia to go into cities so that Russia knows that you know that in order to take Kiev, right, it's going to take a lot of losses and it's going to take time. If you if you do that, it makes it more likely Russia may not you know pursue this this, this campaign all the way, and that maybe you know all these other kind of issues back in Russia might be enough that to to force Russia to make a compromise. So all that stuff I think is been smart. In terms of what the U.S. or NATO could aid them with, um, so look, I, I, Stingers. I'm, I'm not sure how how much a role Stingers have played, but Manpads certainly have played a role. Um, I, I would bet that Igloos are playing a bigger role um, comparatively, but Manpads are clearly playing a role. Um, and cool, explain yeah. Igloos for, for our listeners. Sure, it's a Soviet designed Manpad system. Yeah. Um, and so they're different variants. The Russian military is a more advanced variant, um, but ultimately, look, you know, old, cheap, but reliable stuff still works. And they know the Igloo system well, and so you know at least at least one video that sh- apparently showed one of the one of the Russian helicopters getting shot down it was apparently from Igloo. Um, and I would bet more of them, you know, more of the, the losses that Russia's sustaining are probably from Igloos than they are from Stingers. Um, Javelins are clearly having a role. I think in-laws are probably playing a role. They're playing a bigger role than I expected. Um, so that's been that's been you know quite significant. I think one way that could it could help them out, and I, I agree with Mike in terms of fighters. I think. Um, there's a question about how effective they'd be. It also raised the question of this is, is conflict escalating, right? M- more so with NATO than does with some of these other weapons we're, we're providing. Um, TB2s make some more sense, right? I think Turkey's continued to probably deliver TB2s. Um, you know, it, it's hard to see or hard to know exactly what TB2 has been doing recently. They posted videos a couple of days ago. Maybe they're still operating, not sure. But at least, you know, if, if Ukraine wants to, they can make, you know, you know um, um, key kind of raids to destroy targets and maybe send a few TB2s and not worry about losses, right? So that, that can still be an important asset at a very kind of strategically important time. Um, and, and Rob, but- just on the TB2 question, I think you posted uh, a video of a Tor 2 now escorting convoys. Do you think that's in direct response to TB2 threat that they're now trying to protect the convoys against uh, the drones? Yeah, so you know, I think um, so that, that could be TB twos. It could be just two twenty fives, right? So Ukraine's two twenty fives continue to, fu- to to fly, um, and, and that's you know, look, that's another lesson is Ukrainian pilots flying in this kind of very contested, dangerous airspace. It takes a lot of bravery what they're doing, um, and they're continuing to fly, and it's, it's quite impressive of them. Um, you know, going back to what Mike said before, because it doesn't appear the word was passed down to, to many soldiers and many many guys in the military that they're going to invade. It doesn't appear that like they made all the preparations and thought through coordination with all these things, right? And so it's it's certainly possible in the beginning they weren't, you know, they might have their, their, their short range air defense systems with these units. It's not clear they necessarily integrated it into the plan. And so there, I, I assume we look at this, you know, later on after, after the conflict and learn more about it. There are probably some significant coordination issues between the Russian ground forces air defense systems and the Russian ground forces maneuver units, just because that it, it wasn't necessarily clear to all these guys they're actually going to be doing this operation. It does seem as though that they're, they're using them more often. Um, as Mike said, I, I have no doubt they are shooting down uh, TB2s and other Ukrainian aircraft. They're allegedly two Ukrainian 225 shot down today. Not confirmed yet, so it's just, it's just kind of a, a claim. Um, but but it, they're certainly playing a role. And, and we talk about what things might be useful for the Ukrainian military. Well, one of them would be, you know, books. So some NATO militaries still have, you know, older books, maybe OSA, maybe these kind of Soviet-style um, uh, ground-based air defense systems that Ukrainian soldiers would know how to operate, wouldn't need much time to operate, and you, you could probably deliver them pretty quickly. Those things would be still be effective. And I think, you know, one, one lesson of this conflict is that a lot of these older Soviet 
air defense systems seem to still be effective, right? They still seem to be uh, potent against aviation, um, e- even though these are, you know, the things that Ukraine has are mostly, you know, pretty old systems. They're not the most modern systems, but they're still having effects. So it's, it's, it is still something, you know, important to kind of note going forward. That's a great point. Uh, you know, one, one piece of equipment that seems to be incredibly valuable to the Ukrainians is tractors. They seem to be towing a lot of abandoned or, or uh, uh, taken over Russian uh, armored, uh, armored vehicles and other things uh, with those tractors. I don't know how many videos I've seen of that at this point. Uh, but let me ask you, Mike, uh, coming back to the air power um, discussion that Rob just brought up, I- have we overestimated Russian air power? Why haven't they been able to destroy the, all the airfields? Uh, I was looking at some star images that I was sharing with you the other night. Most of the runways were still operational as of a couple of days ago. Uh, Ukrainians are still flying. How have the Russians not been able to shut, shut, it, shut all that down, given the overwhelming advantage they have in the air? Well, the honest answer is yes and no. So first, they didn't try. This didn't actually start out with a large aerospace campaign. They thought that they were going to degrade Ukraine's ability to put up its air force primarily through missile strikes. And they've iteratively fired quite a few missiles into Ukraine, I think up to 600 now, which is pretty, pretty large given the limited size of the magazine depth in uh, Russia's long-range PGM arsenal. You actually haven't seen substantial uh, airstrikes on the air bases so far in this war, although I suspect we're going to we're going to we're going to eventually see more of that. They started out with very limited use of air power and actually very limited use of combat helicopters given the hundreds that they have deployed in the region. They were doing a bit of uh, close air support, which Russian Air Force actually isn't all that good at, with C-25s, which is a pretty high-risk platform to use. Uh, some use of combat helicopters. And you saw a real transition to greater use of air power probably a bit after the fifth day. That's when I began to see the first real tactical bombers appear. Uh, probably the last 24, 48 hours, you've seen it really increase, and it's been a bit of a dark day for the Russian Air Force, given the losses they've they've suffered. And and they're paying the price for, for a couple of... Uh, decisions. First, they, they didn't try to do real suppression or destruction of Ukrainian air defense, right? And they left pockets of it. They haven't been operating throughout the country, I think, under a judgment that they wouldn't have to, and it would be high risk. Why take on air defense systems in regions where you don't really want to fly and you don't have to, have to provide air support there, right? The second factor is that they're actually not very good at suppression or destruction of, of adversary or defenses and, and historically have not trained well for that mission, although you are increasingly seeing anti-radar type missiles used in this conflict. Uh, the third reason we can lead to suspect is that they're actually still holding quite a bit in reserve. I've seen some good questions being asked there of, hey, can the Russian you know aerospace force conduct complex operations? Are they out of PGMs because we're not seeing them being used? So my short answer is, yes, they do have PGMs. If they're not being used... And just might... explain PGMs for the audience. Yeah, precision-guided munitions, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of um, flying lower to try to maximize the accuracy of unguided weapons. So the reason they might not be used is because they might be holding them in reserve, fearful that this could escalate, for example, into a regional war with NATO because they're expensive. Um, and on air ops, I have to tell you, uh, folks that do OSINT, you got to really accept the limitations of what you can and cannot see. There's a lot about air operations that you cannot discern or you cannot remotely discern in a timely fashion, given the limitations of what you can see. So I suspect we're going to learn a lot more about the complexity of Russian air ops, including in Belarus and Russia, combat air patrols and and various aspects of it. They just We can't see 
based on what you get on social media or Telegram channels. That said, it's perfectly fair to ask, how come the Russian Air Force had been missing in action early on in this war? And, and I think a lot of the reasoning still goes back to the beginning of this operation. A lot of Russian capabilities have been missing in action. Where are all the unmanned systems, the drones? They have thousands of them, right? We're not really seeing much of the heralded recon strike, recon fire complex. Where is the electronic warfare? They deployed many systems and haven't used much of them. You know, uh, encrypted cops, uh, digital, you know, VHF, all that jazz. They've they've clearly have a mix of units and they're using a host of uh, analog radio systems. So there's a lot about this operation that's bizarre. And there are things that it's fair to ask or uh, or to reassess about Russian capabilities. I'm kind of reserving judgment. and I'll tell you why. So. You know, we tend to veer between extremes, typically in analytical communities, right? After 2014, I had to spend my time trying to explain why Russian military wasn't really 12 feet tall, right? I can already tell that given Russian performance in this conflict, probably have to spend a lot of time explaining why the Russian military isn't four feet tall. This war is kind of given off strong uh, 1939-1940 winter war vibes. And, and I think we're going to learn a lot about actual Russian military capability and performance but we might also learn a host of things that aren't true. And I've been in this field long enough to, to be conservative as an analyst and sort of approach some of these takeaways cautiously and not to jump to conclusions too early, especially only a few days into a war. That's a great point. You actually you compared it to the Winter War of 1939. But uh, I saw you comparing on Twitter to the first Chechen War. And uh, you said that uh, uh, Pavel Grachev, the, the guy that ran that war, for Russia back then seems to have been resurrected from the dead and using the same tactics uh, that they did back in, in 94, 96, a war that they badly lost. Yeah, I, I made a comment that at the opening, at least the first 48 hours, I said, it looks like the ghost of Pavel Grachev is well alive and planned this operation because he infamously said to Yeltsin sort of cavalierly as an airborne officer that an, a Russian airborne regiment could capture Grozny in, you know, in two hours. That the long story short is that it felt as though the initial operations kind of concept and assumptions were based on the probability that, yes, Russian forces and Russian airborne could quickly get into Kiev and and somehow overthrow Zelensky. And, and of course, uh, maybe that's the best analogy for the beginning of it. Now it's increasingly, sadly, looking more like the Second Chechen War in 99 to 2000. Yep. Um, very good point. Uh, so for, for everyone who is joining us, um, this is Dmitry Alperovich. I'm chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, having a conversation with Mike Kaufman of the Center for Naval Analysis and Rob Lee of the Foreign Policy Research Institute about the war in Ukraine and the military campaign that's that's taking place right now. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the urban warfare that's coming up. Uh Presumably, at some point, they'll they'll surround Kiev. I assume you guys agree with me on that. Uh, what is that going to look like, and how long is it going to take, Mike? Let, let's start with you. Is, is that just going to be absolute horrific, barbaric pictures and videos that we're going to see of decimated civilians, women, and children, and uh, complete destruction of that city? Is that what the Russians are planning? I think it's going to get pretty ugly, and. Yeah, I'd, I'd sort of been on the record for a while saying that I think the worst is yet to come in this war. I definitely think that Vladimir Putin's the kind of person that would destroy half a city like Kiev just to take it. And the, the biggest question I have is looking at 
the rate of attrition, the issues with sustainment, I really have begun to wonder, you know, whether or not this force is not going to need a pretty significant operational pause. I kind of written that I think, you know, three to four weeks, this force is going to be exhausted. Its combat effectiveness is really going to drop. It's really going to diminish. They're going to need uh, some kind of ceasefire to reorganize, resupply, replenish. I just, I, I just see them running through a lot of units pretty quickly, particularly on the front line. And, and I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical that they could take um, a major city like Kiev in a few weeks. I, I just, I'm, you know, I have to reserve judgment, but I, I'm not seeing it. To be perfectly frank, after, after barely a few days into this war, it became very clear to me that that there's no way Russia can really achieve its political objectives in this war. It may be able to achieve military objectives, certainly. But I don't see military means being able to achieve their desired political ends, not at this juncture, not given how they started and how wrong their assumptions were. And I now am kind of increasingly seeing them trickle more and more resources to, to underwrite what I think at the outset is a failed strategy. And I have definitely seen that before in a military conflict. Do you, th- do you think they have those resources to bring in? I do. I mean, absolutely. And, and even though um, to even to fill out this force, they've had to rely considerably on conscripts for support, reservists, which we're increasingly seeing in units that were definitely mobilized and put there, and auxiliary forces like Rose Guardia. Uh, I think they still have quite a few more resources. Remember, a lot of the firepower and capabilities that Russia has still aren't necessarily in this fight, right? It's, this is a pretty limited use of air power, combat aviation in general. And even though a substantial amount of the force they deployed is now in Ukraine in the theater, technically it's committed. Uh, you're, we're still seeing pretty small scale engagements in terms of how Russian units are organized and how they're acting. And if you look at Russian railroads, you see quite a bit of forces being still pushed through that are possibly uh, weeks away to reinforce the units or perhaps replace the units that, that were largely lost or made combat ineffective. Got it. Rob, do you, do you agree with uh, Mike that they may not be able to take a large city like Kiev um, or that they're going to need an operational pause here to, to regroup and uh, rearm and resupply? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's unpredictable. So I think, I think it's, it's, it's always hard to predict this kind of stuff. I think we you know look at some of the campaigns. Aleppo took a long time. Right. Obviously, it wasn't mostly Russian forces on the grounds. It was mostly Russian SSO, Russian air power and, and you know, Syrian fighters fighting that fight. Um, but I mean, look, there's certainly a question of if they really go into Kiev and, and they're defending it block by block. Right. R- the Russian military will take very heavy casualties. Right. And even if they try and reduce the city to rubble, you can still fight from rubble. Right. If you if you if you um, if you uh, if you really want to. And so it, it is, there's no guarantee they can take it quickly. There's no guarantee once you encircle it, you can take it quickly. It's still a huge city. And of course, to encircle it, you need a really large force to do so. Um, not to mention, you know, they could also leave you exposed to you know, Ukrainian counterattacks from, from, from Russia, Ukraine, or you know, if Ukraine gets aviation, it, it'd still be an issue there as well. So it, it's not fully clear to me um, whether they can do it. I think my view is that it's a bit of a race in time here, right? Where I think there's going to be a strong domestic response. I think ultimately you look at the, the effect of sanctions, you see all these uh, private corporations leaving Russia, there's going to be a significant effect, right? And, and, the, and the extent of those disruptions, some of it's being felt now, it's going to keep being felt more. As, as the ruble collapses more, 
all of these, you know, all of these uh, contracts that are done on medium, long term, those are going to have to be renegotiated. All of these jobs, right? People are going to need to get paid different way than they're getting paid before because the ruble now is, you know, worth less than it was before. All those issues become an issue. Commercial aviation is going to start, you know, shutting down in a large degree because much of Russia's commercial aviation are, are, are aircraft from Boeing or Airbus. So there are all these issues. And I think, you know, we're already looking at very heavy casualties. We look at these significant economic disruptions to the way of life for a lot of Russians. Ultimately, in a few weeks, I think there's going to be uh, it's going to be hard for the Russian government to kind of just deny that's happening and to not have to make some kind of change. Right. And even if the news, even if you cut out, you know, all those kind of independent news sources, ultimately, Russians are going to feel the effect of this and you can't kind of keep them blind to that. So I think ultimately, within a month or so, it's going to be it's going to be a problem for Russia to keep continuing this conflict the way it is, and they're going to have to try and make a change most likely. Um, hard to say exactly when it will be, but ultimately, I think it's kind of a um, race for them to try to take Kiev before they can do that. And I'm not sure they can do that, right? And ultimately, you know, I don't think they can take you know two months to try and take Kiev or these other operations, and so it's going to make them, it's going to make the overall kind of campaign difficult and. You know, it's, it's difficult for me, as, as Mike was saying, it's difficult for me to see exactly what the political solution is here for Russia at this point, because this campaign was about rewriting the mistakes of 2014, 2015, of what they didn't achieve because Minsk was never implemented and never had a satisfactory long term solution. Well, it's not clear to me what that long term solution they can achieve right now without taking Kiev is. And even if they do, you know, it, it would still look like a long term occupation of much of Ukraine. Um, and I don't think, you know, just expanding the the borders of Donbass is a sufficient compromise for Putin. So it's it, it's not clear to me how this thing ends. But I do think it's going to be it's it, I think it's going to be difficult for me to see how Zelensky and Putin will both be in charge of their countries at the end of this conflict. I think one of them will go and it, it depends how it kind of ends. Yeah. Let me ask a very practical question. We may have people in Ukraine that are listening. And I've like you probably have been helping a lot of friends try to get west uh, from from the eastern side of the Dnepr. And uh, I initially assumed uh, before the war began that he would stop at sort of the, the eastern side of the Dnepr. He would take Kiev, but he wouldn't go far west. Uh, do you guys think that there is a real risk that cities like uh, Lviv in the west are going to be in danger of being encircled and sieged uh, in, the, in the near future? Obviously, he's already going west towards Odessa, but that's still the Black Sea region. Would he go further, further west? Mike, maybe start with you. Sure. So I had originally thought that the mental cut line they had in mind was around Zhidemir and Venice, and that they were going to basically cut that border down to Moldova, um, leaving sort of the more western parts of Ukraine uh, without significant ground presence. I had always believed that they were going to operate west of, of the river. It's just a question by how much. In fact, if you... I think if you even saw that map I released of what I thought the Russian concept of operations was the night the war started, it's not far off. It's not exactly right, but it isn't very far off from uh, what they've attempted to do. Now, I don't know. I'll be honest. I think they're probably revising and reassessing based on. So that's that's as far as I'd go. Rob, any, any thoughts on that? Uh, you know, I think it's going to be tough for them to do so. Um, ultimately, the longer this conflict goes on, it's going to be tougher for, for Russia to kind of weather it. And, you know, they're already having enough trouble trying to encircle in these cities in the east that aren't falling. So the the amount of Ukraine resistance, I think, has made that very difficult for them to try to move the western Ukraine, given that even, you know, even the more the areas they, they might have expected would be more welcoming of Russian forces 
are proving to be pretty resistant to that, right? And, and, they're, and, they're, and they're protesting and making this very clear. So I don't think they, they necessarily want to go to Western Ukraine. I think even if in the beginning, the most optimistic idea was that that could work. At this point, I think there's going to be over, their force can be too committed, you know, holding or controlling all these supply lines and, you know, trying to control the country. So, I, I, yeah, I just, I don't think that's a likely scenario at this point. Got it. So, so um, a question on occupation and sort of, sort of the insurgency prospects. We're, we're starting to see some occupations, right? They took the city of Kherson and some of the other smaller cities like Melitopol. Uh, what, what are you guys seeing there? Maybe we'll start with Rob. In terms of insurgencies, perhaps it's too early, uh, but uh, how are they doing on the occupation so far, taking over the governance in those cities, flooding it with the Roscovardia units? Um, wh- wh- how do you assess their ability to occupy them? So, you know, I think in the short term, they might be OK, but medium term and long term, I, I, I don't see it as a viable option. Um, so they, they, bring, they brought Roscardia units. Um, a lot of the ones who are operating in the south, it's, it's like uh, Roscardia units from from in Gushidia, um, areas of Dagestan. Obviously, the Chechen Roscardia guys have been quite kind of um, famous for, for their involvement in this conflict. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I, I'm not sure they, they really have a great plan for a long term occupation. And one of the big problems they, they, they face is that right now in Kharkiv and other cities, they're destroying all the industry and the economic, you know, all, all the kind of jobs and the economies of cities they are being destroyed right now. And so at the end of this conflict, whenever that is, um, you know, where are the reconstruction funds going to come from? Russia's economy is in, is in a bad shape. It's going to get it's going to get even worse. They're not going to have funds to, to to rebuild these things. And if you don't have an economy in these cities, right, even if you take them, um, it, it's just it's just a breeding ground for uncertainty. If there are a lot of young men and, and people who don't have jobs and aren't particularly happy about what just occurred, so I don't think this. I don't think the prospects are very good in the future, just based on on the economic side, based on the amount of popular resistance there is, and you know, it, 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 it's not clear to me that the the guys they've deployed from Russia are necessarily that well trained for you know counterinsurgency type of uh, environment. Yes, they've deployed Russian guys to Syria. Um, they haven't, you know, played too key of a role, really. It's, it's you know, they, most of the Syrian army kind of do most of those things. But, you know, the, the military police as well, the other unit they've kind of developed for, for counterinsurgency environments, it's too small to do a lot of this, this kind of stuff. And it's not clear that, that they're, you know, the most competent at doing it either. So I think there are big questions about how this goes medium, long term. If they, if they try to occupy these areas, I, I think it's just it's not going to work out that well. And ultimately, you know, if, if, if you try to occupy a country that doesn't want to be occupied, your prospects are always going to be poor, right? No matter who you are, no matter what the other kind of details are. Well, let me push back on that. And maybe, Mike, you can chime on this. But they, they have a lot of experience doing counterinsurgency. Obviously, they've done it successfully in Chechnya by, you know, killing lots of people, being extremely brutal, torturing people, committing war crimes and the like. Uh, even in, in the Donbass in 2014 and Crimea, they had some people that uh, wanted to oppose them. And th- those people got vanquished very quickly. Um, what what do you think of their prospects for fighting an insurgency, knowing the brutal tactics that they usually employ? So that's true. And, you know, authoritarian states often can have actually a better track record at that. But be that what it may, uh, most of the counterinsurgency examples we have are pretty small scale, and many of them are internal to Russia. This is something on a very different scale in terms of the scope of the operation. And the resources and manpower available to it, to me, uh, just really aren't there, um, especially given what the sanctions are going to do to the Russian economy. I think that the Russian the gambit is going to result in absolute catastrophe for the Russian economy moving forward, and that's going to be felt very rapidly. 
And the way they restructure the military, right? One of the biggest things you get when you move from a mass mobilization army to a permanent standing force that's primarily contract based is fairly small. It's capable, you know, granted we're not seeing it really perform the way some of us are expe- expected. But what it's not set up for very well is some kind of population centric counterinsurgency or occupying a large part of the largest country in Europe. And so if we look at the initial assumptions, which were that they would not face significant amount of resistance, that they would be able to conduct this operation quickly and thereby without significant levels of destruction, doing the sort of things that would generate uh, an increase in growing popular resistance, those were proven wrong. And that's why I'm actually more and more confident in my assertion that I do not see how they're going to achieve their political objective, no matter the amount of military means they pour into this fight. They can fail quickly or they can fail slowly. But either way, I don't see great prospects for uh, the overall goal of the operation. That's, that's just where I'm at right now. That being said, as always, like the caveat, you know, war is highly contingent. So um, uh, it's difficult to make hard predictions. But I just don't see this military set up for that. I don't see it expecting that. And I ultimately see tremendous problems with Russia trying to even hold these large chunks of territories or some of these cities. Got it. Uh, let me bring one more element that does not, I think, get enough uh, discussion in this war, and that is the information operations stuff. And given the uh, over the last 10 years, if not more, how obsessed we've been about Russia and its troll armies and uh, lies uh, on me- in media, etc., it's been astonishing to me to see the Ukrainians have completely uh, decimated the Russians in this field, if not in others, uh, in terms of quickly publicizing their successes, some real, some imaginary, and the Russians really not having a lot of rapid responses to it and and uh, really being stymied uh, in their ability to um, do propaganda in this war. How, how do you guys explain that? Uh, you know, Mike, maybe start with you and, and then we'll go to Rob. Sure. So, you know, one of, one of the confounding aspects of this operation is that the Russian leadership actually wanted to keep it secret. They wanted to keep it secret from their own public. They thought they could get away with it. And it's clear that not only did they not intellectually evolve since 2014, they actually thought that this operation might be like a much larger version of what they tried to do in 2014. And so because of that, they completely ceded the information environment to Ukraine. After a few days into the operation, They've been trying to slowly claw it back, try to brand this operation at home and mobilize public support because they saw they had a big problem. The operation wasn't successful. There were people protesting against it in major cities already. And news was starting to trickle in and some very unfavorable negative reports. And so now they're doing a lot of damage control, focusing on their own public and public perceptions of Russia. And, you know, with mixed results, but I, I will say they're definitely mobilizing parts of the public in support of this war. But in terms of a broader information environment, Ukraine has done great. It's allowed Ukraine to basically galvanize support to suggest that they're doing well, that they might win, and to encourage a lot of other countries to back Ukraine in the critical initial days. And, yeah, Russia basically almost had a media shutout. They largely seeded this, um, the information contest, and in, in some ways it sort of 
it's not just the the way the military is fighting it's also the way they're contesting the information environment is like uh you know harks you back towards the late 1990s early 2000s so um but okay that's so so, how, so much for the non-existent gerasimov doctrine of hybrid war right yeah 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 absolutely we you know the Uh, the hybrid war we uh, heard so much about that I used to rail about for many years an intellectual junk drawer that, um, you know, is much less useful than people thought it was, whereas conventional war is the principal challenge. And, and it's here to stay, as, as we can see. But but be that with it may, I, uh, I, I definitely think that we are going to see a change Russian approach to the information environment. It will be much more focused on their own public and mobilization public support than it will be on the West or contesting the, the broader discourse. Got it. Rob, do you agree with that? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the notable things about this war, right, you compare to, say, the Iraq war, um, the Bush administration spent a year mobilizing public support for that war, right, justifying it, going to the U.N., all the other kind of things, right, and we can look back on and see how much that was true, but, you know, they spent a lot of time mobilizing public support, justifying what they're doing before that war started. Uh, Russia didn't do that this time, right? And and not just did they not mobilize population, they didn't they didn't let, let the guys who were going to take part in this operation know about it. And so, there, there are huge issues about the status of this war. The longer it goes on, since they didn't make those justifications, except for you know a day or two prior to the war, and you know it wasn't clear they they really sufficiently mobilized population to get ready for a you know long campaign. that was going to see a lot of Russian soldiers get killed, and not necessarily clear what their objectives are. Well, you know, part of the, the issue with the information uh, environment, too, is that the, the, the political goals are always weird, right? especially the, the explanation. Right. Initially, this is about the Donbass. So the initial um, videos we're seeing were all from these kind of like defense, you know, kind of correspondence or or, you know, semi or, or, or less, um, you know, uh, uh, related to the government or military who were providing out these videos. But all from the Donbass, right, where, where not much was happening for the first few days. And so they weren't publishing videos from what's going down in, in the south. They weren't publishing videos from the north, all these other areas. They're basically trying to pretend they weren't going on because the, the justification of this operation was mostly about the Donbass, right? That and denazification. But, you know, I don't know how you explain that exactly. So only recently have they started, you know, as Mike said, once we started seeing these videos of Russian losses, right, including of, you know, top of line Russian tanks, of Russian helicopters getting shot down, of the you know, TB2 strikes on, on the Bulk M1-2 systems. They started publishing some videos. So we've seen some helicopter getting gun camera footage. They start to try to show off the kind of the high-tech side, side of this, where it was a big deal in Syria. They're trying to show, oh, look, we, we are a modern military and all these things we can do. Um, of course, you know, one thing we're seeing is a lot of the new equipment they have is not as, uh, you know, impressive as we thought it was, right? One example is the, the PGMs that's on the floor, one of the issues they had when they were trying to go after the Ukrainian Air Force is they couldn't hit some of the runways, right? So, I mean, runways are not, you know, that small. PGMs should be able to hit them. And there, there's evidence for satellite photos. They're missing airfields and leaving airfields intact even after firing, you know, multiple missiles at them, right? That was a, you know, significant kind of lapse. It, it clearly shows a vulnerability and, and, and a problem with kind of Russian equipment. And so overall, you know, I think the IO campaign, it's, it suffers from the other parts of the campaign where the political goals are a bit strange, not clear what they're trying to achieve. The fact that they didn't you know, let people know and, and, and kind of prepare this ahead of time. All of those are still issues. And, you know, again, it's it's still a bit strange to, to try and justify some of the things they're doing. The Syria campaign was a little different. Right. They, they obviously made a bigger deal in trying to outreach to, to foreign countries to try and get support for what they're doing. Well, they're, they're not getting that support this time. And obviously, you know, the, the 
really unified response outside of Russia is, I think, also contributing to that. Mike, you, you've made a, this point to me privately over the last few days that Russia has never done anything on the scale, or at least not in a very long time, probably since World War II. How much do you think that that's impacting uh, this campaign for them? No, I think massively. And clearly they didn't intend to. They thought that this would be something close to a cakewalk and it was a terrible uh, miscalculation. But absolutely, look, this is, a, this is you know, the world's largest country, essentially invading the largest country in Europe. And, you know, even in an alternate universe where everything had gone well for the Russian military, they still would have taken significant casualties. It would have been much more difficult to assess. And likely a lot of planning might not survive first contact with uh, with that actual war. So, so my own view of it is, and I always expected Ukraine to put up a solid fight. I mean, outside of, you know, whoever in the Kremlin thought that this could happen in three, four days, I don't think any serious person looked at this and believed that Russia was going to defeat Ukraine in a handful of days, right? And, um, you know, Rob, Rob makes, made a good point earlier that, yeah, they, you know, the Ukrainian military held and, and didn't lose. But I, I'm not even sure how, how, how any of this would have been possible in a few days. It's just the, rea- the reality of the scope and the magnitude of the task. And here's the other thing. People have fairly criticized said, hey, military analysts, did they overestimate, you know, Russian capability and whatnot? Well, there was a basis for the military assessments that were had. They were not invented out of whole cloth. However, you know, military analysis 101 Military power fundamentally needs a context to express itself. You cannot measure military power in the abstract. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. Lots of people try to, but it doesn't tell you that much. There's only so much you can glean from exercises. There's only so much you can glean from limited use of force in conflicts like Syria, where the country you're studying can dictate the pace of operations and has much greater control over the situation. So there are a lot of unknowns that shake out in, in wars like this. And you're also going to see the, the Russian military evolve. So, you know, the, the long story short on that is, yes, we haven't seen them try to do something like this. I'm not surprised that a lot of this didn't go well for them. I'm happy that it didn't. I uh, definitely am seeing things that surprise me. I'm sure Rob is, too, in terms of just poor performance and execution. And we're having a good debate. And the debate is, is that because the concept of operations is unworkable? Because I do think this is fundamentally an irrational force employment, and they left a lot of capabilities simply not used that we know they have, and we've seen them used in other conflicts. Or, you know, other people will say that the whole thing is rotten, you know, and we can debate why, but they will say that this is, this is just a bad army and whatnot, and, and you definitely have those takes. Uh, I'm not inclined to jump to those conclusions and judgments yet. I'm probably going to give it some time. Rob, you know, we're getting a lot of questions about the communication piece of this. The fact that the Russians have not really used much of EW, except in a few local areas. The fact that they themselves seem to be relying on cell networks with their cell phones. And even after the Ukrainians shut off all the Russian phone numbers from their telcos, they started grabbing cell phones from Ukrainian civilians and using them for communications. They're using commercial radio equipment. A lot of questions of, well, do, do the Russians not have uh, sophisticated encrypted military equipment. And I've been looking pretty deeply into this issue. I'm curious for your thoughts on this, particularly as a former Marine infantry officer. But uh, it appears to me that they've had two issues potentially with with the comms. Uh, one issue is that if uh, 
you know, you guys are correct, and I think you are, that they haven't been told that they're actually going to war and that they were on these training exercises. If you're using military comms, you, of course, request crypto uh, keys from uh, key material from headquarters to load into your uh, communication equipment, and you typically get it for a certain number of days. So I do wonder if they got um, uh, essentially not enough of the crypto material to actually use in the war situation, if they use it all up in the uh, training part of the uh, of the deployment, and if their equipment is anything like ours, it won't let you reuse the crypto material because it'll make it insecure. So that's that's number one. And number two, you know, having talked to a lot of comms officers in the U.S. military, they tell me that HF communications are really really tough to get right and require constant training. Um, otherwise, people just uh, completely lose those skills. They atrophy very, very quickly, and you're not able to, to use equipment and communicate with anyone. So potentially, there may have been a training problem as well where they have the equipment, but they just can't use it because they don't have the key material or they, they're not trained well enough to do it. And they're just re- resorting to kind of civilian communication systems. What are, what are your thoughts on this um, uh, hypothesis? Yeah, I, I think it can make sense. Um, you know, I, I, this is one thing that's kind of hard to observe from kind of like open sources looking at the Russian military, right? When you look at the big exercises, you know, to what extent are they using encrypted comms or what, what extent are they, you know, going around and using cell phones when things, you know, collapse or whatever, right? Hard to tell. Um, in Syria, there are some indications that um, they, they did have some problems with encrypted comms because so, so they started using um, RCID jammers, right? Remote control ID jammers on the vehicles, just like like we do in, in the U.S. And, you know, one thing that was true, for at least for us, I, I think it's true of them, encrypted communications still work if you're operating with with one of these these kind of uh, EW jammers. Um, but your, your non-encrypted stuff wouldn't work, right? And so I think in the case for the Russian military, there were examples in Syria where they were hitting IDs. It appeared they're hitting RCIDs, and it's because... They couldn't communicate and they decided, you know what, we'd rather be able to communicate and use our, you know, black gear radios than use our jammers. Right. So a couple of cases of that where where, you know, kind of indicating there's some problems. Um, another issue, and this is this is a broader problem in the Russian military, is that there was a big corruption case a year ago that's still ongoing, where it was the the head of the Russian uh, military's uh, communication troops um, who he made his, he had his big procurement deal for I think the uh, Azart radios, right? The main kind of uh, the green gear encrypted radios that that Russian soldiers use. That basically it, it was a huge corruption scheme. He 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 came up with with, with some other uh, senior Russian officers and also some of the uh, defense industry officials. Where basically they set a price for the procurement of of the the radios. This is what it should cost. And then they went and actually went to China and basically bought. Most of the the radio from China from from cheaper Chinese components, and then added some things in Russia, and then basically the the because the components are cheap in China were cheaper, they they the difference they they pocketed, and so a huge embezzlement case, but it, which is is still very common in Russia, right? It's, it's common in the Navy and the Army and all over the place. So th- there is some question to me about how much of the the equipment problems we're seeing, how much is that is due to corruption, right? How much of that is due to these, you know, consistent issues that are still a problem in the Russian military. And one thing the Russian MOD has done since 2014 is they basically, as the MOD and the Russian government in general, they've used the threat of Western sanctions as an excuse to classify things, right? To make more procurement classified. So there's a, there's a procurement website where you used to be able to see everything. Much of that is classified now. Much of the, the you know, the amount of funds that go elsewhere, classified, so on. 
Well, that also obviously increases the opportunity for corruption because there's less of transparency. If you can put journalists in jail, which they have um, for these kind of things, well, now you can just be you know, corrupt more blatantly and don't have to worry about getting caught. So I think that's potentially an issue for the radio stuff as well. Um, it, it certainly looks as though it's, it's a limit, you know, liability for them, or at least a, a weakness. And, you know, one of the issues that's been surprising. So obviously we, we talked before about the EW piece about how, you know, I'm surprised more Ukrainian command and control and communications was not shut down by Russian EW because we know they have effective EW and we've seen it in Syria, right? And, and U.S. officers have said, you, you know, Russian EW has been effective at interfering with stuff we do, right? It makes life difficult. So we know they have these capabilities, right? Maybe some is exaggerated, but we know they have them and they're not using them to their full extent. And it comes back to one of these issues in general about why aren't they using some of the capabilities they have? One of the things that's, that's interesting is that we know they use um, electronic warfare to locate uh, communication signals, cell phones, those things for targeting purposes, right? So they use that as part of the reconnaissance uh, strike complex, reconnaissance fire complex. It's not clear to me that we're seeing that much employed right now in Ukraine. Yeah, um, and by the way, I was very concerned when Elon Musk started providing Starlink uh, um, uh, Starlink terminals to Zelensky and his entourage because if they're the only ones using those terminals in Ukraine, pretty easy for the Russians to start targeting them regardless of who's using them, right? Right, exactly. And, and, and I, I thought it was a huge concern, right? And, and, and you know, East, it was the EM management. Um, it's been a huge deal in the, the, the U.S. military, as it should be. Um, but ultimately, it doesn't appear that they're using it that effectively to target Ukrainian, you know, senior officers or positions. Um, and that's, again, a little surprising because we know they deployed Lear 3 EW systems. We know they're, they're used for that purpose. And it's not clear that they're, you know, maximizing that. So, again, we, you know, one of the big questions we had overall is that the whole fires piece has been a bit bizarre, right? They haven't used it all. They haven't used it as effectively as we've seen them use it in Syria. Okay, it's on a broader scale, but still it should be able to, to do it more effectively. And we're still seeing, you know, I still have questions about why we're not seeing it employed as effectively as it is. And, you know, part of it comes down to they, they weren't, you know, told ahead of time, but there are probably some other issues too that we're not necessarily seeing that aren't, aren't necessarily transparent right now. Mike, we're getting a lot of questions about the Navy. Where's the Russian Navy? We saw them take Snake Island, Zemini Island, with that famous um, 13 defenders, uh, Ukrainian defenders, that turns out actually did not die and are captured. But where, where's the rest of the Navy? What, what is it doing? Well, it looks like they're mostly blockading, right? They, um, they conducted some kind of small, I think, unopposed landing off of Mariupol just to do it with naval infantry. And this is one of those... Um, you know, operations where the naval infantry gets sent in to do do its thing, even though they, they could have probably driven there faster from Crimea. Uh, they're holding off most of the LSDs for a potential amphibious landing somewhere near around Odessa. We'll see. I think the only good they can link up with ground forces. You see Russian ground forces right now driving around, kind of kind of hunting for a crossing west um, that's north of Mikolaev because they've face stiff resistance in Mikolaev and they can't seem to get through. So they might try to go around the whole city. And once they are actually in a position around the desk, so that's likely where the naval infantry is going to come in. Again, I don't think they need to. I think they're going to do it because they can just to do it. On the rest of the Navy, they've been firing caliber cruise missiles into Ukraine on a pretty steady base. In fact, we saw a salvo of eight towards an air base today. And they've probably expended a sizable amount of the caliber land attack cruise missile arsenal. You know, we've not seen too much naval action. I don't, I don't think we expected to see much. You know, there isn't, there isn't much in the way of a Ukrainian Navy. And, and the, 
you know, the only Soviet inherited frigate that they had, Edmund Sagadashi, they effectively scuttled in port uh, about two days ago. So that's so much for the Russian Navy. I think if there's a major role to play besides blockade and uh, land attack strikes, we're going to see it potentially in the coming days. That's that. I'm not saying that an amphibious assault or landing is necessarily imminent. I'm just saying that they clearly still set up in position to do one. Got it. Another question uh, that's coming in. Uh, the Ukrainians appear to have flooded some of the areas around Kiev, presumably by blowing up uh, some of the dams around Kiev. Uh, do you think that will impede the Russians' ability to surround Kiev? Maybe Mike and then Rob. I mean, it's definitely hampered their advance because not only did they blow up the bridges, they definitely flooded parts of the plane. It's constrained um, their ability to fan out from that convoy. Is it going to be such a tremendously deterministic factor overall? Um, I don't think so because uh, eventually they're probably going to find a way to get around it. But I, I think it was ultimately a smart thing to do. And it's one of the many factors that's held up this large push of Russian forces from Belarus. Rob, do, do you think it will stop them or they'll find a way around it? Uh, it's not clear to me how, how large the area is. I mean, I, I know I just saw um, like one or two photos of it. Um, they could probably work around it. But look, I mean, it, it's one more way Ukraine is throwing a, a wrench into Russia's plans, right? Making things more difficult, um, you know, by hitting the vulnerable points. And I think they, you know, they identified that and they, they We've seen TB2 strikes. One of the things they focused on was logistics vehicles and uh, fuel. And they, they, they clearly see what the vulnerabilities are, and they clearly think, let's go after those, make life more difficult, and you know, slow down Russia's operation as much as possible. And they, they continue to do that. So wouldn't be surprised there's one more way they're doing it. Um, blowing bridges makes sense, too. You know, Russia brought all their bridge units. They brought pontoon units. Um, I'm not sure if we've seen those deployed yet, but we've seen them bring, you know, he- heavy mechanized uh, British and other systems, too. So they should be able to work around it. But, um, you know, look, it's, it's one more way Ukraine is making life difficult for the Russian military. And, you know, they, they've, they've, they've clearly shown I'm sure we're going to find out some examples of the future after this conflict's over about all the things they did that made life difficult. And everything you do, you know, it just it just throws a, a wrench into the kind of concept of operations of what Russia's trying to do. All right. So. Uh- our crystal balls, collective crystal balls, have been pretty good thus far, certainly predicting this invasion. Uh, let me ask you to pull them out once again and answer this question. Mike, we'll start with you and Rob go to you next. But how do you think this ends and how soon? Oh, wow. Not only do I have to answer how it ends, but also give a time limit to it. Thank you, Dimitri. <laughs> um, it's wonderful. So first, I, I think that this war goes on and gets uglier but that ultimately what we get is some kind of ceasefire, then there's an operational pause. It may lead to settlement then, or the war very likely will go on in a different phase. We sort of close this initial chapter, and and afterwards it continues. Uh, ultimately, how it ends from my point of view, well, I think it's not going to lead to a political capitulation in Ukraine. I don't think Russia achieves its political goals. I think that it proves economically disastrous for Russia itself. It's certainly disastrous for Ukraine at the same time. Um, And I'm increasingly starting to think that this might be the beginning of the end of the political regime in Russia. This is the first time I've really started to think this way after many years of looking at it. I'm, I'm not sure how the regime recovers from this. 
they've essentially thrown under the bus all the key security components that form some of its important pillars in this operation. And, uh, you know, those chickens are going to come home to roost at the end of this. So I, I'm, I'm skeptical about the future, the future for the, for the Kremlin. Yeah. I tweeted about this a few, I think about a week ago that the prospect of a palace coup in Russia seems to no longer be a 0% chance as I would have thought even a month ago. Um, given the fact that the economic devastation of Russia is going to be very, very severe. Uh, Rob, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so <clears throat> let me pick it back off what, what Mike was saying. One of the things that's really um, surprising about this conflict is that Russia's making a lot of the same mistakes U.S. made in Iraq, right? I mean, and, and obviously very different conflicts, but ultimately trying to pursue maximalist you know, political objectives um, by invading a country and hoping for the best, right? Having optimistic uh, kind of scenario and then not having a great plan if it didn't work out. Um, it, it, it's surprising because Russian officials for so long looked at what the U.S. did in Iraq, looked at what they did in Afghanistan and said, we, we want nothing to do with this, right? Basically, the U.S. military decided we don't want to occupy areas. And even in Syria, right, it was basically, well, we'll help, we'll help the Syrian army, you know, take places. We'll help provide air, air support. But ultimately, the Syrians will, you know, do the occupation. We're not going to get involved in that kind of stuff. Um, so they, they basically did a 180, right? And I think that's, that's why so many people didn't predict this war would happen. Is that it, it, it deviates so much from previous Russian behavior, um, previous, you know, behavior that Putin kind of, uh, kind of took, when he was, you know, again, he, he has a pretty good record in wars. Uh, I think the Donbass 2014 was, was a mistake. But I think other than that, he, he basically, you know, was pretty effective at achieving more limited objectives. This time, obviously, is different. And one of the big problems is, you know, a, a big part of the kind of contract that that uh, Russia has with, um, with with Putin is that, OK, if you stay out of politics, well, I'll bring stability. You know, the economy might not be as good as it, it possible, but, you know, it won't be terrible. And then also, you know, Russia will be respected foreign policy player, right? And the, and the military was a key element of that, right? Here's our military. It's, it's feared, right? There's always, you know, Russian news covers new weapon systems all the time. And anytime, you know, the national interest of some U.S. publication says, oh, the Armada tank is good, it immediately becomes an article in TASS and elsewhere, right? It's, it's this big deal. And so they love hyping the Russian military and they love mentioning how Russians view favor, favorability view of the military has increased dramatically since, you know, the mid 2000s when hazing was a huge problem. I mean, it still is a problem, but maybe not as bad as then. Well, this war um, has shaken some of those kind of views. Right. It's, it's, again, it's not the Russian military is, is a favorite target. Right? It can do a lot of good things. Um, it, it can still defend its borders. It can still inflict pain. But it, but the um, Putin put it in a very bad position. He didn't set the, the political leadership, set the military up for, for failure. And gave it a award that was very hard to achieve the political goals through military use. And then, you know, didn't, didn't give them enough time to prepare for it and, and make coordination. So all those things come back to saying, OK, for Russians, you know, if they're looking right now at the economy, getting, you know, just getting hammered. Right. The ruble collapsing, um, you know, the, the Internet, all these kind of companies leaving all those kind of basic conveniences, you know, going to start affecting their lives. Right. Traveling abroad is going to be tough. Commercial aviation is shutting down or going to shut down. So all these issues are coming, right? And at the same time, there's a war where it's not, not necessarily clear what they're trying to achieve. And also at the same time, the Russian military is not performing that well, right? And ultimately, you know, some of this is the political level. Some of it is, is corruption and other kind of leadership issues, right? Where, where, where young Russian soldiers were not told things. There are clear leadership problems. And ultimately, I think that's, just, that's, that's coming to end too. So when, I think when this comes back to it, 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 who do you blame for this, right? And ultimately, you have to blame the senior leadership of the Russian government. You have to blame Putin. He's the one that decided to do this. He's the one that allowed the system to start. 
And ultimately, we're seeing all these kind of, you know, failures of the Russian military, some of which are, are maybe not their fault, but, you know, many of which are. And Russia spent all this money in the Russian military, and yet we have these issues. So it, it all kind of comes back to saying, what are we, you know, is the system really representing Russians the way they, they want to be represented? Or are they happy about this kind of contract? Or has that social contract broken down? And I think, I think it is. And I think, you know, we're going to see that over the next month or so. Um, in terms of how this it has ends, you know, it's hard for me to see Zelensky and Putin both remain presidents at the end of this. I think one will probably, you know, lose power one way or another. Um, it, it's really hard to predict this. You know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure they're going to be able to take Kiev before domestic issues kind of flare up in Russia. Um, they can still inflict a lot of damage, right? They can destroy Kiev. They can kill a lot of Ukrainians. Can they, can they attain a sustainable long-term solution? I don't think so, because ultimately Ukrainians don't want it, right? And, and, and the more damage they do, the more Ukrainians are going to be angry about this situation. So it's not clear that they have a good situation. Um, and, and it's certainly possible that they have to accept some kind of compromise solution or they try and occupy the eastern part of the country. And then, you know, over time, that just becomes a, a bleeding sore because the uncertainty will more, more, more likely kind of come out. And again, as long as Putin's in office, you know, Russia is going to be uh, going to be a pariah for private industry for, you know, government responses, all these things. And I, I don't know how long that can last. Right? I don't know if you can take a country that has such exposure to the rest of the world and then make it into a, you know, not quite North Korea type situation, but, you know, losing a lot of those liberties. I'm not sure you can do that in the leadership still stays in power. So I think there's some real questions there. And, and, and you know, I think basically we're looking at, you know, I think similar with Mike, I think we're looking at about a month, right, where they have to achieve some things and then try and wind down the active phase. Uh, even though a long-term resurgency may continue after that. Got it. Mike, did you want to make an- another comment on this? Yeah, I just wanted to make two big comments. So first, you know, it, it really struck me that this war is si- sadly a reversion to um, what has been historically true in in how the Russian political leadership had placed the military in the worst position to have of a conflict. The late Mahmoud Gareev, who for a long time was uh, head of the Russian Academy of Military Sciences, he died a couple of years ago. He served under Garkov, and he would publicly kind of write and complain. This is, he's seen as one of the kind of late science and, and, and Russian military thought, or at least its curators. And he would long write that, you know, historically, Russian political leadership would always put the military in the worst position at the beginning of a war, you know, from the Crimean War to the Russo-Japanese War to World War II to, you know, the Chechen Wars and, and even the even the Russia-Georgia War, you know, the military was on the military would be either unprepared or in shambles or poorly equipped or or uh, subjected to a surprise attack. And, and you kind of thought that after the Russian military reforms, this was over. And I think for many Kind of looking at this, they see it more as a regression than anything else. Um, another part of that, so you know, you asked on how this ends, and I probably gave a at best an incomplete answer. Um, it may end with some ceasefire, but I think it, you know, it, it's heading at best towards an ending as to how the first Chechen war end with you know a ceasefire and an accord that essentially papers over a political defeat and a terribly unfortunate. Uh, expenditure of military power of casualties and and uh, the destruction of a number of cities but but Mike uh, the the pretext that Putin used for this which was obviously ridiculous but it was denazification of Ukraine so are you saying that he's gonna have a ceasefire with the Nazis with the people he's calling Nazis 
Yeah, he's going to go back and say that Zelensky's actually legitimate. And as you've seen, he's got sort of three core demands. Uh, recognition of the annexation of Crimea, granting of some kind of independence of Donbass, and Ukraine agreeing to some formal form of neutrality. I'm not fully sure what that means, but... Um, I, I think I, it means no NATO and some sort of yeah. no demilitarization. Yeah, I get that. I'm just saying, I'm not sure practically in technical terms what that means. Like, is that something that's written in Ukraine's constitution? Or, you know, what was what, yeah. he actually asking for for a deliverable besides Zelensky, you know, shaking his hand on it? Um, which, which obviously won't do. So looking at it from that perspective, I think if they get some of that, they might be able to spin into a victory. But of course it won't be. Because look, either way, these troops are going to come back home. There was Guardia troops, the military, um, and, and even some of the, I think, deeply frustrated, upset FSB people. And he's going to have to deal and reconcile with those folks when they come back, especially the POWs. When there's an all-for-all prisoner exchange, which there typically is at the end of a conflict like this, they're going to come back home. And they have families. They're going to have stories to tell. All right. One more question here. And, and Mike, this will be to you, because not only do you study Russia, but you also study China. What, what effect do you think this conflict will have on China and its ambitions to take Taiwan, if any? OK, I'll just put out there. I'm primarily a Russian scholar. I'm at best a dilettante in anything China related. So I'm going to engage in a bit of intellectual tourism. But I'll afford myself, given how many people are affording it in the field of Russian military analysis today. <laughs> uh, so my view is that people probably are drawing too many linear conclusions as to what the Russian invasion of Ukraine means for a potential Russian invasion of Taiwan. My, my only two kind of lessons, or at least things that are interesting to me, are first, I know that China is looking at the immense amount of sanctions and the political reaction against Russia that Russians didn't expect because we ourselves probably didn't expect this degree of unity and likely wondering what it means for itself and the kind of economic punishment and containment it would face in the event that it tried this kind of brazen form of aggression against Taiwan. Right. That's the first. And here's the second. You know, if there's one military that's definitely more untested and unproven than Russia's, it's China's. They've bought a lot of kit. They spend a lot of money. They have a lot of capabilities. They don't have a whole lot of military experience in probably the last two generations of warfare. So all that being said, um, if I was them and if I was us, I would definitely look at the difference between expectations and performance. And I would ask some of those questions about the Chinese military as well. And if the Chinese leadership is, is of sound mind, they too would wonder exactly on what the military instrument of power can can deliver in practice, particularly in, in a high-end contingency like this, when you're trying something that you really haven't tried before. Got it. Well, everyone, thank you so much for coming to this Twitter space. I hope you found this discussion informational and fascinating. I certainly did. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find more knowledgeable people on the Russian military than Mike and Rob here. Please do follow them on Twitter. Their feeds are just absolutely fantastic. Thank you again, gentlemen, for sharing your insights and knowledge with us tonight. I know most people listening here are certainly hoping you're right and that Russia does lose this war. And I know all of our thoughts are with the civilians that are suffering just terribly right now in Ukraine. Have a good, good night, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks.